Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? Or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where a woman from the right and a woman from the left accessorize the news with a fresh perspective. This is Sarah Holland from the left. And Beth Silvers from the right, and welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where we accessorize the news with a fresh perspective. And before we kick off our newest episode, we wanted to ask as sincerely and passionately as we can to please subscribe and review us on iTunes. It helps other people find Pantsuit Politics. And I know it's not super intuitive how to review it, but you kind of have to search. Even if you're already a subscriber, you have to search for Pantsuit Politics all over again and go to the main show page. And then there's a little tab thing in the middle that says reviews, and you click that, and that's how you rate our show. And we would be eternally grateful. 
So we'll begin today with the pearls, our segment where we pick pieces of news that we think deserve some attention. So we started um, talking earlier today, Sarah, about the climate change summit that's happening in Paris right now. Mm-hmm. Um, huge number of world leaders, both from the public and private sector, I think 19 governments, 28 major investors are discussing billions of dollars in investments um, around clean energy technology, uh, greenhouse emissions. This is just really um, a, a major effort to combat climate change on an international level. And what I think is most interesting about this is that it's happening in Paris. And I think it's um, a nice opportunity to not only talk through climate change and economic issues related to climate change, but also to hopefully do work that builds a coalition that will combat ISIS and will really kind of unite the world in its philosophical approach to terrorism. Well, what I thought was interesting is that they talked about um, in, with, in the same way that they formed OPEC, the conglomerate of oil producers, they're now forming a conglomerate of solar energy producing countries. Um, like I guess like the top solar energy producing companies so that they can kind of work as um, towards one common goal and as one kind, one common body with regards to that energy source, which I think is encouraging um, with regards to just the growth of solar energy. I think so too. I mean, I don't know why climate change is such a polarizing topic and, and you know, we could spend a lot of time diving into that, but what I like about this summit is that, the view of um, environmental policy as also economic opportunity, mm-hmm. you know, that and what you said, too, about the with regards to terrorism and global security. I mean, I remember having one time I had a conversation with two Secret Service agents when I worked for Hillary Clinton. Um, I was like setting up an event and they were there early and they were basically like, why would Al Gore get the um, Nobel Peace Prize? And I said, yeah, climate change sounds sort of sciencey and not relevant until people start fighting over resources. Right. <laughs> and then you realize it is really important to global security. Well, and also there are just whole industries to be created around, you know, new technologies to adapt to these issues. I don't know. I think it could be really interesting. And I think anytime you're talking about true innovation, there's an opportunity to discover something you didn't intend to discover. Right. Too, right. So who knows what could come from this? And I just think it's, I think it's exciting and, and we ought to be supportive of anything that unites this many countries mm. um, and brings this many really smart people to the table. Right. Speaking of smart people, Beth. <laughs> you know, it's a tough segue. Oh, it's encouraging. Well, we got another positive one after this, so we'll just get through this as quickly as we can. I need Donald Trump to stop talking. I need him to we stop. We all need Donald Trump to stop talking. Talking. His numbers seem to finally be going down, though. Well, and anecdotally, I mean, you definitely hear people saying, look, the end is near. Yeah. I'm very, very thankful to the union leader in New Hampshire for endorsing Chris Christie to just give us something else to, to speak talk. about on yeah. the Republican side. Yeah. But I, you know, what I pulled out of this week with respect to Donald Trump, 
I thought that Chuck Todd did a fantastic job interviewing him on Meet the Press. I'm going to put aside how much it irks me that he that Donald Trump just calls into all these shows. Yeah. Like what is you can't how do they get not on get satellite up? feed? I don't understand. Well, and also, how do they – is that not have to be under some kind of equal coverage situation? I, I don't know. I don't know what the deal is with these with these phone-ins. But anyway, despite the fact that he was just talking to him on the phone, Chuck Todd just tore into Donald Trump about getting his facts right about what happened after 9-11. And I think this is such a weird thing that Trump has injected into the conversation anyway. Um, but I really appreciated Chuck Todd saying, you're running for president and your facts matter, and we don't base our facts on polls or retweets or people who agree with us. Right. Well, I really hope that it is true that the end is near. I hope so, too. I mean, we have just got to get serious. And I also hope that this, maybe if we can learn something, you know, from the craziness that has been the primary this time, it is we all have to care beyond sort of the bumper sticker view of politics. Um, My husband has this theory that he actually was just doing this for, like, publicity. And then as he actually started winning, he was like, oh, crap. So what crazy stuff can I say to, like, make myself lose? <laughs> oh, interesting. He's like, I think he's trying to throw it because he didn't really want to be president. I don't think he wants to be president. I actually don't. I, I think, I mean, it's kind of a funny theory, but I also don't actually think Donald Trump wants to be president. It's. I, I think it's more about winning than yeah. the job. Yeah. I don't. Right? He, he doesn't want to be an administrator. He doesn't want to go around. No, I don't believe that for a hot minute. Although I have to say, there are a lot of people in this race that I think don't actually want to be president. Yeah, I agree. It's it, And that's part of what's so discouraging about the process. And I think what's so discouraging to me about the polls and the conversation on social media about the process is just that people don't seem to care about the facts or care about the actual policy, you know. Mm-hmm. But hopefully this teaches us something. So I'm going to be optimistic that the Donald is here to provide a learning moment for all of us. That's so back to positive news before we move on um, out of to our part of the pearls where we praise a person from the other party. I was very touched and encouraged by the statement that Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan released with regards to their uh, the birth of their daughter, Max. Uh, side note, I have a friend who also has three boys, and we find it very frustrating when people name their girls boys' names because <laughs> there's not enough, like, you don't get to name boys' girls' names. Like, don't take the few names we have when you have all these amazing names open to you. So, side note, don't really dig the name. Dig the statement. Um, they said – they posted this really lovely thing where they said, um, I'm going to read a part of it. Like all parents, we want you to grow up in a world better than ours. It's a world where our generation can advance human potential and promote equality by carrying disease, personalizing learning, harnessing clean energy, connecting people, building strong communities, reducing poverty, providing equal rights, and spreading understanding across nations. We are committed to doing our small part to help create this world for all children. We will give 99% of our Facebook shares currently about $45 billion during our lives to join many others in improving this world for the next generation. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. 
Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsy. Yeah, it's really touching and 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 it happening in action. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is one of the folks who's pledged money to the efforts around mm-hmm. climate change in connection with this. I think summit. he's there, or no, maybe he's not there. I think he's on paternity leave from his baby. But I thought somebody said like he was there, involved somehow. Well, let's also say kudos, Mark Zuckerberg, for taking a paternity leave and for normalizing the fact that men should take time off to be with their families after the birth of their children. Um, I really appreciate that example, and I hope that it gets a lot of attention and encourages, you know, businesses, but more than that, just men generally to do this. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Who was the other one? Um, It was the owner of, um, 
Oh, it's leaving me. The shoes. Tom's. The CEO of that company did it. He took a long one. Did he? Yeah, like six, I didn't see that. Yeah, he wrote this really beautiful piece. I'll post it in the show notes. It's like, it was like a six month paternity leave, and he wrote this really beautiful piece about how important it was, and it was really hard for him. Obviously, he cares a great deal about his company, but um, it had just how important it was, basically. Good for him, I know that company has an amazing culture, and yeah, you know, I get that not every company is Tom Shoes or Facebook, but I think the more prominent figures like this do this, you know, that's how we make change. And that's good for women, men, families, everyone. Yeah. Um, so do you want to go ahead and share our person from the opposing side that we enjoy? You want to start? Yes. Yes. So this, uh, segment came to us when, um, I think it was in the Republican undercard debate, uh, questioner asked each Republican to name someone from the other side they respect and no one would answer the question and that frustrated me enormously. And so, um, we here want to set an example of just complimenting the other side. So mine this week is Wendy Davis of Texas who wrote a remarkable essay in this week's, um, Lenny newsletter. Which I love, Lenny, but it's really frustrating because you can't basically get links. You only get it by subscribing. So I would say we'll post it in the show notes, but we we actually can't. Right. <laughs> you have to you subscribe have to, to Lenny. And the other thing, you should, but. The other thing that's frustrating about Lenny is like they are publishing so much content so fast that I can yeah. hardly keep up with yeah, it. Yeah, I agree. I'm like. I have like five of them backed up in my email, yeah. like to read sometime. Yep, agreed. So Wendy Davis wrote about how she hates losing. And she talks about her failed gubernatorial bid. What I really appreciate about her, you know, she's known for her filibuster in the Texas um, Senate in pink sneakers um, to prevent some sweeping anti-abortion legislation. Um, and, and, And that was an impressive moment, to be sure. But what I what I valued in this essay and and about her generally is this is a relatively young woman just out there working hard, successful sometimes, not successful others. I think she sets a tremendous example for women who want to be involved in politics. You know, her agenda differs from what my agenda would be. But I like her approach. I like her grit. Um, and I think in this essay, just talking about how she hates to lose and like the toll that it takes on you to put yourself out there for public service, that is a conversation that we need to be having. I think it is so hard to contemplate running for office as a woman for a hundred reasons. And she really just runs head on into them. And um, I respect that it's a great example. There's a lot to be learned from her. And a, just a realistic portrait and a, I just feel like we need more honesty with regards to everybody running for office. And really, you know, we've talked about this before, a more open and honest approach to, to talking about politicians. They're not monsters sent from space. Like, talk about them like fellow human beings, because if you don't like the current crop of politicians, talking about them like they're dogs is not encouraging other people to run. That's right. And also just seeing, like, the humanity of her shows you this is a real person making a difference. I think we abdicate a lot of our responsibility to participate in the process by thinking of politicians not only as monsters, but also as people possessing such an abnormal degree of wealth that they're their own class, right? 
we the people actually can't be part of a citizen government. And and I think that's just false. And she is a, a nice example of the falseness of that. So um, I just am changing mine that, that previously we discussed. <laughs> um, I forgot that I listened to the most amazing podcast with Arthur C. Brooks, the head of the American Enterprise Institute, which is a right-wing conservative think tank. It's based in D.C. Um, as it's you know, it's a it's as the title of the think tank says, American Enterprise Institute. It's a lot about um, free enterprise and promoting that. And um, I was it was an interview between um, Arthur Brooks and Ezra Klein, and it was just so good. And he had so many great things to say about the value of like, you know, his thing with regards to um, the social welfare system is just the value of work and how important it is to have work that sustains you and feeds your family. And we need to perpetuate a culture that values people's contributions, no matter what they are and all these interesting things. And I, I mean, I don't want to get the internet too excited, but I'm totally going to read his book. It's called the conservative heart. Um, it's next on my list after I read, Tanahasi Coates, and I might be the only person right now with a reading list that includes Arthur C. Brooks and Tanahasi Coates, but um, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm cool with it. So I was just, I thought that he did a, re- and it was really funny because he was like, it's like total Alex B. Keaton. Like he grew up in Seattle with all these liberals and turned out to run a conservative think tank. Um, but he, and he does a lot of on the economics of like happiness and how work makes you happy. And it's it just everything he talked about. I was totally fascinated by the only thing that bummed me out was in his entire the entire podcast, he talked about all these people he admired. He never once mentioned a woman and, in fact, would, like, speak broadly and just say, oh, these guys out here doing this. Or guys. And I was like, dude, I'm listening to you. I'm connecting with you. But it's like you only know men exist. That was my only beef with him. But otherwise, yeah. I, I thought he was great, and I really enjoyed a lot of what he had to say in this interview. I've seen him interviewed as well, and I am very excited about this book. And I appreciate anyone who shows um, that conservatives don't wish harm on everyone, mm-hmm. you know. Well, he just did a good idea. He was saying, like, you know, so much of this, the debate sometimes is about, like, what are we actually trying to do? Like, so he was talking about um, – food stamps. And he's like, so conservatives define success in the food stamp program by spending less of the budget. Democrats uh, define success in the food stamp program by how many people are on food stamps. He's like, but nobody's talking about how many people actually need to be on food stamps. Are there people like we're not measuring who who is the program serving successfully? Who is the program not reaching? We're just talking broadly about how many people are, are on food stamps and how much money we're like. He's like, we're talking past each other. And nobody's talking about a measurement that actually is indicative of the success of the program. And I think that is exactly what we're trying to do here, right? Get to what is the point instead of just these positions that pass in the night. So um, it's it's awesome to see other people doing that work. So speaking of, that's what we will be moving on to our next segment where we're trying to get to the to the bottom of a bigger problem in the suit. So that's in our next segment. of the suit, we're going to talk about um, a very highly contentious issue in American politics that is um, in the news again, 
which is gun violence and gun control. And I know, Sarah, that this is an issue that is, um, you know, that you're particularly passionate, passionate about. Just to set it up, as I'm sure everyone who's listening knows, there was yet another um, highly publicized incident of gun violence this week in Colorado, where um, a man went into the vicinity of a pan, Planned Parenthood clinic and killed, I think, three people, one of whom was a police officer, injured nine others. Um, and just a really tragic situation and another, unfortunately, a situation that not only reignites the, the debate on gun violence, but also the debate on abortion. And I'm not sure there are two more polarizing topics um, than these two. So we're hoping to have a discussion that maybe gets past some of the emotion and the rhetoric and and gets to what are some actual solutions because no one wants to continue to see this kind of news. Well, and and I will say up front, you know, for those who are who don't know, I was a um victim of gun violence at a very young age. I was a junior in high school and night actually 18 years ago to the day that we are recording this podcast, December 1st, um, I was a junior in high school at Heath High School in Paducah, Kentucky, when a freshman named Michael Carneal carried four guns into our school. He opened fire on a prayer circle, and he killed three of my classmates and wounded um, five others. So, you know, obviously I take this issue very personally. I also um, take any attack on Planned Parenthood personally, because I used to work at a Planned Parenthood. It's a very, it's, it's an intense place to work because of all the security measures you have to put in place because of the ongoing attacks and harassment. And I will say with regards to that particular shooting that just happened, um, I do place responsibility on those who talk about Planned Parenthood and um, who talk about people involved in the abortion debate as if they are monsters, as if they, again, sort of what we were talking about before, we can have it. I'm I am happy to have a debate on abortion. I don't think it's as black and white as either side makes it out to be. Um, but to speak about the other side as if um, they don't respect, just with a lack of respect for their their humanness, I think is what leads to these kind of attacks, and it's very dangerous. And um, so, I, yeah, that part of the story obviously I take very personally. And then today, you know, I shared on my blog that. I'm just tired of it. I'm just, I have such a righteous fury is really the only word I can describe for it. I don't want to hear people say any, I'm, I feel exactly like President Obama. Like, I don't want to hear that we're praying for these people anymore. I don't care. I, I, it's not that I don't care. I mean, that sounds harsh, but like, I don't want to just pray anymore. I want to do something. I, I'm still so, especially per, particularly as somebody who sends a child to first grade every single day, I am still so dumbfounded that that Newtown happened and, you know, 28 people were murdered, including 21 first graders, and we haven't done anything. We, I, I mean, we have too many guns in our country. We have a gun culture that perpetuates the idea that people should own as many and whatever kind of guns that they want, and that, to me, is crazy. It's just crazy. Like, I, I, I'm not saying you need to take your guns away. I have very good friends that hunt and my, you know, I have family members that live alone that own guns for protection, you know, what, whatever. I'm not saying that's not part of the debate, but like the idea that you can just 
have an arsenal of guns and that's fine and we don't care. I don't, I just, I'm shaking my head. I'm well, so, my head. so let me say that, um, I, I should probably like apologize to the more conservative listeners of, of our podcast because I, I'm not a great representative of the conservative position on guns. Um, I did not grow up around guns. My family has very, um, there are, there are people in my extended family who hunt, but it has never been a part of the culture of my immediate family. So I, I don't have, um, a real passion for the second amendment. <laughs> now, <laughs> um, now that being said, certainly I believe in individual liberty. Certainly I believe in our rights to self-determination. Um, I, I don't get hunting, but I also don't demonize it. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm, Amy, I'm a full Amy Poehler on hunting. Good for you, not for me. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And so so I think there is here, – here's what bugs me about this conversation. I think there's a difference, a huge difference, a very important difference in – in saying, let's talk about our gun violence problem and what we might be able to do about it on the one hand. And on the other hand, they're going to take our guns away. Yeah. Like, that's not what this debate is about. And I really feel that a lot of the propaganda of the sort of gun lobby is a conversation about money masquerading yes. as a conversation yes. about policy. Oh my gosh, yes. So much money involved. Come on. It's, no. it's so much money. And so so looking at I just want to take apart a few things that I hear a lot on the conservative side of this that that I think deserve a little bit of reframing. First of all, the idea and, and my husband says this all the time that that people kill people, guns don't kill people. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, okay. I mean, there's certainly there is some truth in that. However, I think it's important to talk about why guns are seemingly a weapon of choice. <laughs> um, the difference in the outcome of crimes committed with guns versus those that are not committed with guns. And this is where I feel like our conversation should not be fully informed by mass shootings. Yeah, I don't think so at all. And I said that in my post. I think that that's too narrow of a focus. It's too narrow of a focus. It wholly ignores um, a huge portion of the population. I mean, the fact is that that black Americans are disproportionately affected by gun violence. And I think that when we place all the focus on mass shootings, it almost looks like we only care about white lives that are impacted. Um, So I think it's, I think it's really important to say gun crime is different than regular crime. And when you're, yeah. And here's the other thing too, when you're talking about gun control and you're talking about, which my point is, and it's not my point, it's uh, every smart, you know, smart people who study the issue. More guns equals more death. That does not mean just mass, mass shootings. That does not, it does mean that. It mean it doesn't just mean more homicides, although it means that too. It means more things like suicides. Like there is a yes. huge 
impact with regards to guns and suicide that I don't really think people understand. If you, and I say this as a person who, you know, I've had people touched with suicides and I just, you know, I have children who I don't hope that they don't grow up and, and, you know, struggle with any kind of mental illness or depression. But if they do, I sure hope that they don't have access to guns in a very depressed, terrible moment at 17 or 16. You know, when somebody tries to kill themselves by hanging or drugs and, you know, not to get in these like very difficult, hard things to think about, but it's true. They're not as successful. If someone tries to kill themselves with a gun, they're most likely going to be successful and they're never going to get the help they needed. And, you know, I just that it's everything. It's accidental death. These, I mean, it's like every I think Washington Post wrote up or somebody like these like toddlers shooting their parents or shooting their siblings is happening sort of on the reg. You know, like that's disturbing. And, and so. So, yes, it is true that that people using guns are, are the problem. But guns are different, you know, and I think we have to be willing to have that conversation. I also think we have to recognize, you know, I, I get that any kind of legislation or restrictions around guns will not prevent all gun-related deaths or crimes. But we have all kinds of laws targeted at reducing rather than eviscerating problems, mm-hmm. right? Like, and I don't know what, if... I feel like the discussion really bothers me that, like, well, but, and it's like that. It's like, well, it won't fix, it won't solve it completely, so why even address it? I'm yeah, sorry. Well, no. Why do we have any laws if that's the yeah, case? Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, I'm not looking for a perfect standard here. I'm really not. And so then the, the next thing I want to say is with respect to the Second Amendment, let, let us assume for the moment, and I don't wholly buy this, but I'm going to, I'm going to take this position for purposes of our discussion. Let's assume that the Second Amendment really stands for the proposition that every American is entitled to own the weapons of his or her choice, right? We have all kinds of constitutionally protected rights that come with responsibilities and limitations. And, and conservatives, myself included, advocate for the idea that you have a constitutionally protected right to vote, but you should have to show some identification in exercising that right. You have a constitutionally protected right to free speech, but you can't use that speech to incite violence. And there are time and place restrictions on where you can exercise the right of assembly. So to me, what is the problem with putting some restrictions around the way that you can buy firearms? I think that it should be harder to buy a gun than a funnel cake, you know, (laughs) and We live in Kentucky where it is just as easy to buy a gun as a funnel cake at all kinds of fairs. I mean, literally, you can go to, like, a county event in our state and just pick up a gun from a booth. That makes no sense to me. I have to give someone an email address to buy mascara, you know. I don't understand why. I'm not saying you can't buy a gun. Right. But I think you should have to. I have no problem with universal background checks or the idea of a gun registry. I just don't. I, don't I mean, Amazon is tracking my every move. And God bless them because they anticipate my needs now, and I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't fear. Um, well, and, you know, if, and, I'm, if I'm a responsible gun owner, I don't fear any of those things. Yeah, that's yes, a, it's yeah. my right to have it, but I have the responsibility of doing it reasonably how big of a deal is that and i i'm just not it's there's two things here for me i think that everyone is so 
politicians um, on the left in particular are so scared of this issue that we have to frame it as like these really super, you know, oh, we can just do this and it'll fix it. I feel like that's sort of the message. If we just had universal background fix uh, checks, it would fix it. Like these kind of common sense gun. And I'm not arguing against those. Yes, let's do all those. But the issue is we have too many guns. We have way too many guns. And so, you know, I drive by a billboard in my hometown that's a gun shop, and the, and it's literally like the number 2,000 X'd out and 3,000 above it. And that's the whole thing they're selling at that gun thing is we just have so many. You know, like we have we have this culture that just totally accepts the idea of just large scale gun ownership. And I don't know why I do not think that's guaranteed under the Second Amendment. And I have no problem saying we have too many guns and some of them need to be bought back, mandatory buyback problems, whatever we can try to do. What Australia did, which they had a 20%, I think, mandatory buyback program run by the government. But, like, we, they, some of them just have to go away. There's too many. There's just too many. I'm not, you know, I don't know. I, so, so the conservative in me on that says, how many is too many? And how do we make those decisions? And that's where I struggle with sort of the um, what's an assault weapon, the magazines. I don't know. I feel like all that's sort of a distraction from also just why are people using their guns to shoot other people the folks who i know personally who have in their like a personal collection of firearms rarely use them mm-hmm. you know what i mean like they want to own lots and lots of guns to have these little personal museums i don't get that but i also don't have a problem with it um i i, I think it's it's more productive to pour resources into programs like Operation Ceasefire, um, which I did a lot of reading about today. Are you, do you, have you read about Operation Ceasefire, Sarah? Mm-hmm. So in Boston in the late 90s, um, the police, um, sort of social workers and local pastors came together in this very unlikely coalition to go into communities where a lot of gun violence was happening and specifically to talk with young black men about how endangered their lives were. And they just spent lots of time talking with these individuals, giving them resources to change their lives, committing to vigorously prosecute people who committed gun violence. Go ahead. I'm pretty sure I did hear about this on NPR one time. Yeah, and and it was enormously successful, and other communities replicated it around the world. You know, communities have replicated this effort. These coalitions tend to fall apart um, at some point because of politics and control and distrust between um, races and and people of different statures in the community, and and funding. And I think funding is the key piece. Um, you know, I'm I'm never one to say, hey, let's have a lot of government programs. Let's spend a lot of money on things. But I do believe that this is a place where the government, federal governments, state governments, local governments should direct resources to stop this problem. I think if we get to why are people killing each other and what can we do in these communities to affect that problem? Now, again, does that eliminate everything? No. no. Does that get to mentally ill person 
um, you know, walks into a school and commits this heinous, it doesn't. But I think it gets to the larger gun problem that's happening every single day and hopefully eventually just makes us a better society. I don't know how to tackle the mental health issues. I, I, I wish that someone did. Well, I mean, I think there's two things here. Um, first of all, with regards to the mental health thing first, I read a really – and let me say that for 18 years – my narrative to myself about the shooting that affected my life has been that that shooting is a story of mental illness. And to a certain point, I still believe that Michael Carniel, um, was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. He had mental pro- mental illness, um, and problems. But I think the problem in a lot of ways with discussing, um, focusing on that, you know, sort of like with focusing on mass shootings in general is it, it, um, distorts the issue which is people who are mentally ill are more likely to be the victims of violence and gun violence not the perpetrators and so the idea that we will just magically institute all these mental health screenings and our gun violence will drop especially since those people the mental illness component of that is a very small component is um not realistic now it's also not to interrupt your train of thought but it's also a population that does not need any more stigmatizing yeah, exactly. if we are to ever really address those issues. Well, and the thing is, too, you know, it's not like I'm opposed to mental health screenings, but I just, you know, I think that to a certain extent that might be um, a, a miss, not the right Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better? 
our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Focus. Right. With regards to the um, the Morgan, uh, so today when I was writing my post about the shooting at my high school, I stumbled upon this book, I think, that was written um, that really goes into detail about um, what happened at my school. And to be completely honest, there were some of the things in this in this chapter that kind of laid out in detail the things that are happened that I did not know. And what struck me so much is the access that Michael Carneal had to multiple guns. So over the course of, you know, in the report to the police, um, he stole his father's 38 pistol from a locked box in his parents' bedroom several weeks before the shooting. Um, a few days before uh, the Monday after the shooting took place the Monday after Thanksgiving, a few days before he snuck into a friend's father's garage and stole a 22 pistol and ammunition. Um, he had taken one of this, this pistol to school, didn't know this, and shown it to his classmates. Um, but they said it was small, and basically he wasn't. They weren't impressed with that. Um, then the week before Thanksgiving, he warned people that it was going to happen. He went to, um, he climbed through an open window, found the hidden key to a gun case at a friend's house, took a 30-30 rifle and four 22 rifles. He stole, stole earplugs and many boxes of shotgun shells and ammunition. He carried the weapons home, left them outside his bedroom, and then the Friday evening before. He put the 30-30 rifle and the duffels in the bag, drove to a friend's house. He showed the guns to these friends who told them, who an older brother, I don't know who these people were. The, the, I'm, I mean, I know who he took the guns from, even though they say it's just a friend's house. But he says he showed the guns to the young man and his older brother who cautioned the two boys not to get into trouble. What? Okay, but that's unrelated. So he, then he takes two more pistols later. So what really shocked me as I was reading through this was, oh, my, I mean, these are three different houses in which he got through locks to get to several guns. Right. You know, I, I, I'm going to have to go back to the point of there are too many guns. And I think that everything else we can do is important. But I think we have to address the culture in this country that says everyone has a right to an unlimited amount of firearms. And I know it's hard to discuss things like how many guns is too many and what kind of guns should be illegal. I get it. It's hard. I think the most important discussions in our political debates are hard. You know, I keep this woman on my, in a 
in the post that I posted, you know, she keeps bringing up abortion. I get it. That's that's a hard issue, too. And I'm not saying just because there isn't an easy answer doesn't mean we shouldn't try to figure it out. Like there are people who study this who can probably tell us about how many guns need to come off the market to make an impact on a serious impact on the death rate, because even with sustained efforts um, with regards to homicide and criminal the criminality of gun violence, you still have these huge issues of suicides and accidents and children getting hurt and killed. And I just, it's too much. I mean, we just have ignored it and decided that, what, this is the price we pay in America? Like, this is just the price of doing business in America is that we have more gun deaths than any other country because, what, we're special? No, I don't I don't think it has to be like that. I don't think we have to have these rates that are so much higher than nations around the world. And I understand that there's no country that is directly analogous to America. Like, I get it. But I also think that some of these numbers tell a story in which the story is more guns equal more death, and we have too many guns. Well, I hear you. I I think my my problem with with that line is just that I do think it um, invigorates the polarization of the debate where, where you have people who think, oh, they're going to take our guns away from us, you know? And, and this is what and, I'm and I think that blocks... I think that blocks productive consensus-based approach to change. Like we, we have to have some movement on this issue. And I think the only way we get that movement is to get out of this mode of no guns or all the guns, right? (laughs) There's a reasonable place to live in the middle. I guess I feel like, I mean, tell me if you ever feel like this. I just feel like with some debates, because I don't really feel like what happens in gun control debates is that they're, equally polarized that's i feel like there is one side that is very polarized and highly motivated and highly funded and highly visible and highly impactful and that is the anti-gun control debate and then i mean right those are um that that feels very personal to a gun owner and i get that and so what i'm trying to do is say you know, the 75 percent, like this, we have this really loud 25 percent that's arguing like, you know, from my cold, dead hands and has this very extreme position. And so I feel like the, this, you know, there's a 75 percent of people in America who think, yeah, let's have some reasonable gun control. But we're all like over here sitting quietly and being reasonable and being all, yeah, you know, I really think there's room for common sense gun control debate. Great. But that's not getting us anywhere. And so I just kind of feel like there needs to be a hard pushback against that idealized ideologue side of the gun control debate and say, look, like just because you people are loud doesn't mean we're not going to be that we're going to be terrified of upsetting you and suggesting things that might actually have an impact on this problem. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like we're so scared of the NRA and that lobby that we can't get that. We can't get to the heart of it, that we can't say, look, I'm sorry that you think this assaults your Second Amendment right, but you don't have an absolute right to own as many guns and whatever guns that you want. And we have to talk about that as a society. And we have to say that we have set back and, you know, they've kind of run the debate and we've and more and more people are dying, including, you know, I just like I said, Newtown, like that just blows my mind that that happened and nothing changed. So, like, we have to talk about this in a real like, let's talk about the data. Like, I know it sounds like. I'm this crazy emotional gun violence <laughs> victim and, you know, hardcore gun control. But I'm not. I mean, the numbers are there. It's the data is there. And the data says that, yeah, we can do some of these things. But if we really want to make an impact on this issue, 
you have to get some of the guns out of circulation. You just do. I mean, I think that he has makes that point in Bowling for Columbine, which was forever ago. You know, I think he makes, you know, Michael Moore makes a point in that movie, which is we just, the truth is some of these gun control issues that we all kind of, I feel like what they are is like, don't get mad at us, NRA. We're going to try this. You know what I mean? Like, I just, it's making well, me and, out. <laughs> and that goes back to two things that I think are at the root of a lot of our political problems. One, the influence of money in politics. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that this is, this is really, I think the pushback to gun restrictions is really about money. And two, intellectual laziness on the part of mass portions of our population. Mm-hmm. Because I, it, it really upsets me. I think that, um, the NRA has been particularly effective at turning this into a conversation about constitutional rights yeah. in a way that is disingenuous. And it's and it's striking because a large portion of the population that um, receives that and takes it up and and makes it a personal cause are the same people who loathe great wealth and who loathe the you know purportedly loathe the influence of money in politics. Um, so it's it's really like it, this issue calls out for cooler heads to prevail for people to be informed by actual facts um, and for people to be willing to look past, you know, headlines and sound bites. Just the fact that the phrase gun control polls so poorly, but when you get into the specifics of what gun control can look like, you get that 75% kind of number, you know, that really speaks to our attention span. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I will freely and, and honestly admit that I am not a cool head when it comes to this. I'm just not. I mean, I just, again, I describe myself at the beginning as having a righteous fury. So I'm not exactly cool headed. I'm just tired of it. You know, like when you live something like this at a young age and you just, it just seems so empty when people say they care and nothing changes. You know, like if you cared about what happened to me and my classmates, then can we try? Can't we just try, please? Well, I 100% agree with that. I, I too, am am completely over the thoughts and prayers. I, yeah. I just, I think it's, I, I, I especially don't want to hear that from people who have no intention of even trying to do something reasonable on this issue. Well, and also, I just want to say, with regards to a recent event that called, everybody was sharing their thoughts and prayers, I mean, let's all be really honest with ourselves that, you know, if you're if you're concerned, as I believe the act on Planned Parenthood was an act of domestic terrorism, if you're concerned about ISIS, then you should be concerned that they could get to this country and have easy access to weapons. Easy, easy, like Beth says, it's easy to spy gun as it is to buy a funnel cake. That concerns me. You know, I don't, I'm not saying that we should, I mean, but that should be a component of what we're thinking about. Like, if this is an international threat that we're worried about, are we okay with the fact that they that someone can over could come over here and get easy access to guns? Okay. I agree with you and I think it is shocking that our Congress will not pass legislation to restrict access to guns by people who are on our terrorism watch list. Mm. I think that is shocking. I think it is political malpractice. I think it is the kind of decision making that should cost people their seats. Um, you know, we, we have to we have to do better than that. We well, we owe it to ourselves to be better than that. And I will also say that I you know 
I was also, I'm very upset with how, you know, certain members of the Republican Party handled, and particularly the Republican presidential candidates handled the Planned Parenthood shooting. Just, you know, completely silent or saying ugly things about, you know, implying that, you know, this is basically what happens when you are a Planned Parenthood clinic. I mean, I just feel like you, you know, whatever your whatever your feelings are about that organization, if we can't all agree that the lives of the people working in a Planned Parenthood clinic or not. I mean, these were this was a police officer and a person who was just like escorting her friend to the Planned Parenthood clinic are just as valuable as the lives you're trying to protect when you're pro-life, then, I mean, I don't even know where we're starting with this conversation. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, I, I think it is this this incident just so conflates a bunch of really complex issues. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I was even frustrated by sort of how how quick everyone was to talk about this being politically motivated or not. Like, whatever you think about it, the idea that we can, um, in 140 characters or whatever, get into the head of someone who would carry out a crime like this, I feel that it was manipulated by both sides. Yeah. And, and in a way that does no justice to the victims and no service to our dialogue. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't, I, I'm not going to say that we solved gun control, but I feel like and I'm not surprised to say that I think there is so much consensus here. I don't I mean, but it, I've heard somebody like I said, I've heard somebody describe it this way. Like the people, you know, the people who support the NRA, it feels very personal to them. And so I guess, you know, it just needs to get to the point. Again, just want to say this one more time that the gunning down of several first graders. I don't know why that didn't get us all to the point of feeling like it was personal for us as well. But. You know, I think that we just as a nation have to decide, like, this is it, it's time to debate this. It's time to discuss what's really, you know, everything's a trade off and everything is your rights bumping up against a mine. And and where do we decide the give and take is? And I'm just I wish that we would at least talk about it. Well, I agree. And, you know, although we we can't solve it and and I think we don't have complete consensus, what I hope that we can demonstrate is that there there is a conversation here that this isn't an an or kind of issue we can have legal gun ownership um with some restrictions that help us move past some of this crime and the fact that we can't completely eradicate gun violence doesn't mean we shouldn't give it a shot absolutely absolutely all right let's move on to something more fun in our next segment we will talk about we call it the heels. We'll talk about what's um, happening, helping us, and making us happy in our lives right now. I think it's going to be nice to talk about something fun after, after that. And um, so I am really happy that it's December, despite the fact that December always brings this lovely head cold that you hear in me, um, because I do love the holidays. Oh, and me too, girl. Me too. If, 
If you celebrate Christmas, I can think of no better way to get yourself in the frame of mind than the new Pentatonics Christmas album. Have you heard the the music? No, I have not. It is so wonderful. It's brilliant. It's surprising. It's romantic. I mean, it's just everything good about the holidays um, wrapped up in, in this really just unique. I mean, I love Pentatonix anyway. I think that they're amazing musicians and super talented, but they do this, this wonderful and really, really surprising version of Hark the Herald Angels Sing that's fantastic. There is a mashup of Winter Wonderland with Don't Worry, Be Happy. It's just, it's great. You cannot hear it without smiling and it's, it's a really nice way to kick off the holidays. So um, I will share then my two. I don't have any new, although I was really feeling Kelly Clarkson's last year. I don't have any new Christmas albums right now that I'm really excited about. But there are two songs that I don't think are super, two Christmas songs that I think are not super well known that I absolutely love. And one is, well, I think Sarah, have you heard Sarah Bareilles' Christmas song? No. Oh, it's so good. And I love her. Yeah, she's awesome. Okay, I'm googling it because i didn't do my research beforehand but it's called um i think it's just what's the name of that song hold on i'm asking google uh love is christmas we'll put it in the show notes we'll post it on facebook so y'all can all cry because that's what i do when i hear it for the first time (laughs) it's the most beautiful song and it has my my favorite lyric in the whole song is um i don't care if the carpet's stained we've got food upon our table love love is christmas <laughs> and then the other one is um, called, it's called I Don't Want to Let Christmas Go This Year, and it's by Gabe Dixon. Have you ever heard the song? No. Oh, it is also every year. I just. Um, is it another tearjerker? Or is it totally like a- there? Okay, like I have a real, like, well, I mean, I'm a, when it comes to Christmas music, I am a real mix because my probably my favorite Christmas song is um no uh don't be alone on christmas by darlene love really truthfully any christmas song by darlene love is my favorite christmas song like i I love that like i love her christmas songs like the real like you know 1960s wall of sound like love so they're Mm -hmm. real upbeat but then the my other favorites are all these like super melancholy christmas songs like um oh uh, judy garland's version of Oh, what's the most famous? The I'll be home for Christmas or something? No, else. not I'll be home for Christmas. Have yourself a merry. Thank little you. Christmas. Have yourself a merry little Christmas by Judy Garland. Tears, and this Gabe Dixon song is totally melancholy and slow as the ceremony. I can't help it. That's just, oh, that's my. See, this is where we bring our opposite perspectives because I am way not about the melancholy. Oh, I love it. Music. I I need a little Jingle Bell Rock. Like I'll even take the most wonderful time of the year. I want zippy, happy. Just let's have fun on the holidays kind of I mean, stuff. There's a place for that. I like it. <laughs> but, oh, I don't know. I just love, I love a good, oh, thank, you know, kind of, the, I love the line in um, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas about, like, if the fates allow. Oh, dear. I just don't know what the well, future brings. You'll have to tell me what you think about pentatonics then, because I feel like there is, like, a good mix. There's depth. It's not melancholy, but there's depth. You know, oh, to what they're doing with this Love song. it. Love it. Um, I'm trying to think with the, um, I, would, I mean, like, I literally yelled out loud when I realized that Don't Want to Let Christmas Go 
which is sort of an obscure song, was on um, Prime Music, which means I can ask my Alexa to play it anytime I want. <laughs> love, um, yeah, I love a good, I love a good sad. And my husband likes like traditional old English like choral choir music, which I would rather. Mm, no, it's not my favorite. Not my favorite. Everybody has a preference, though. That's true. And I was in many, many um, madrigals growing up. So I also have a place in my heart for the Old mm. English, I, you know, bring us the figgy pudding kind of stuff. I am uh, making a Christmas pudding, though. Did you see on Instagram? I saw your picture. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty psyched. It's involved, so tell though. tell us about that. So you, so you take, like, the – it's like apples and raisins, and you soak them in orange juice and lemon juice and – it's supposed to be brandy, but let's just be honest. I use bourbon. And so you soak them overnight, and then you kind of put the pudding together, and then you steam it for seven hours. Whoa. And then you let it sit for, like, three weeks. Then you serve it on Christmas Day. Three weeks of sitting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to need to see, like, pictures throughout the process. So the owner of my favorite coffee shop, Peter Barnett in Paducah, uh, Piper's Tea and Coffee, he's British. And he was telling me that the key to Christmas pudding is this brandy butter. He says he makes the breast brandy butter, at which point I said, okay, great. Then you can make me some brandy butter for my Christmas pudding. Um, so he says that you have to have the brandy butter on top of the Christmas pudding. But it's just it's a big thing. I'm super excited about it. I like that you're committing to that. I mean, that's a commitment. Yeah, I had to buy a special bowl on Amazon and everything. So I'll report back. Let us know. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for um, another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Um, As always, a huge thank you to our producer, my husband, Nicholas Holland. Um, Also, our intro and interstitial and outro music is Fourth and Starlight Road, instrumental by Minden, and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 International License.